What is going on, guys? Welcome to Creeps in the Crypt. We are off of a unforeseen week break. I pulled a Morgan Wallen, guys. Sorry. Yeah, Sam. Sam lost her voice for a week and a Everybody half. Everybody sold their tickets to the creep out. <laughs> yeah. The yeah. country creep out. Yeah. I was. You were supposed to be the feature. Actually, we need to trademark that event. The country creep out. <laughs> Am I the country creep? She was. No, she was the feature Andy. creep. <laughs> Oh shit! Well, I'm about ninety percent back. Well, that's good. You I'm, can still you can still hear a little bit. Yeah, well, but that's because I had two and three show days every single day last week. You know, every single yeah. day. You don't sound like you've been you know gargling with sandpaper. So. Uh, I did. I did. <laughs> I did sound like that. Yeah, it was bad. Oh no! It was so bad. Well, as always, I am Eric, and I am joined by Christian and Sam. So, we are finishing out Carl Panzeram. Sorry for the delay. Yes, uh, this will be a double episode day. Yes. So, if you see two episodes in your catalog for the day, you're not hallucinating. You're not hallucinating. It's Surprise! A, it's, a, it's a two Yay! for one, two for one special. Because guess what? The everyone best, loves a bogo. We got a schedule. <laughs> the best kind of prize is a surprise. <laughs> Okay. That? I have no that? idea. Willy Wonka. Ah. Willy Wonka said that. You win nothing. What do you mean? That's what he says. You win nothing. Oh, yeah. At the end. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. All right. So, that's anyway. Like you, that's like you trying to explain something to me. Excedra, excedra. Excedra, excedra. Uh, anyway, guys. That's not how you say that word. Etc. Yeah, <laughs> we, both, we both messed that up. Yeah, we're retards. Um, <laughs> I you know, love like, it here. <laughs> I, I, I can barely spell. Thank God for spell check. What did you do before that? Get it wrong? You didn't, use, like, <laughs> did it make you break out like the dictionary? No, I just look for red underlined squiggles. Did you ever have to like write out of the dictionary because you were bad? No. No, like in school. Oh. I don't know. I did. I mean, we had computers through like the important parts. No, of dude, I was bad all the way up until like forever. Elementary oh, school. I copied all your schoolwork and I passed. Maybe that's why I'm so like I'm decent knowing some and words. I'm just lazy and don't care. Just don't we ask know that. me to spell participation ever. <laughs> I never don't made say it, to, it either. I didn't make it to the P's. I always made it to like the E's and F's and then mm. that would be when my sentence was up. So there you go. <laughs> and just started over. Well, guys, do us a favor. We have listened to your consideration about the ads and to cut down on them. Holy shit. Lucy has joined the chat. Um, she bulldozed through the chat. Yeah. We are going to be cutting ads from now on at the start of the episode. We want to give you the best listening product that we can give you. And I feel like that is a good way to do it. There will still be ads in the mid roll and the post show, uh, post roll. So, Radio, <laughs> fucking Lou, Jesus. Um, so be sure to leave us a review and download the episodes, guys. Downloads are super important. Please make sure your auto downloads are turned on. I would highly appreciate it. I know Sam and Christian would also. Yes, it would be great. Uh, I would like it. They've. I don't know what's going on. I guess a bunch of people's auto downloads have just deactivated. It turns off after like yeah. every like three. I have to reset mine mm-hmm. every three to four months for even po- like other stuff. Not even just like yeah, everything. So it just like falls off. Do us off. a favor if you're on Apple Podcast, check that out. Make sure your auto downloads are turned on. That way the show shows up in your catalog. And if you're on Spotify, do us a huge solid and download the episodes and whatever streaming platform you're on for your podcasting download the episodes that's the that's the main thing we don't have any new reviews this week so let's, let's get into carl panzeram where we left off with carl he had 
just jumped bail and fled the state of Connecticut. And he's on his way to Africa. Yes, he stowed away on a ship and landed in Angola, a Portuguese colony of West Africa. What was the name of that ship again? I don't think it gave us a name. Yes, it did. No, you're talking about his ship. Yeah, his ship. The one that was the joke last week. The Akeister? The Akeista. (laughs) Yeah, Christian called it the Akeister. And if you don't know what we're talking about, that means that you need to go back and re-listen to part one and two so you can know what we're talking about. You can't just jump in. Yeah, I mean, you could, but... It would be confusing. This is is, uh, definitely a must-listen-to series. So, Sam, without further ado, let's get right into this. So Carl eventually gets a job with the Sinclair Oil Company as a foreman on an oil rigging, oil drilling rig. Mm. Damn. Wow. Anyway, he's he's going. Listen, he I'm gonna already, lie. I thought he was already drilling for oil before. Oh, Jesus! <laughs> well, maybe that brown gold. I don't know. I mean, I didn't, I didn't think he was, like, drilling out septic systems or... You know. Oh, well, I mean, he kind of was. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, a little bit. I'm picking up what you're putting down. Thank yeah. you. I appreciate it. I, I unfortunately smell what you're stepping in. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, at that time, the American oil industry was involved in an exploratory expedition to search for new sources of oil in Africa. In the coastal town of Luan- Luanda, I feel like that. I f- Luanda. 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 You're there. Yeah, there we go. Carl sexually assaulted and killed an 11 year old boy. He lured the boy back to the Sinclair Old Company grounds where he sexually assaulted and killed him by bashing his head in with a rock. And this is what Carl had to say. Yeah, I left him there, but first I committed sodomy on him, and then I killed him. Yeah, his brains were coming out of his ears when I left him, and he will never be any deader. Yeah. Oh. <coughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss doing this voice. I'm, that one about <laughs> killed me, though. I'm, <laughs> I had to hold that oh, in. Yeah. So glad you were makeup off. You're running down my face. <laughs> After this murder, Carl went back to the Libido Bay on the Atlantic coast where he lived for several weeks in a fishing village. I love that, you know, serial rapist Carl Panzlerim is living in a place called Libido Bay. <laughs> that just, I feel like that's very fitting. He's coming full circle. Mm-hmm. He's, he's coming a lot. Get out. The locals suspected him of murder, but it wouldn't, it could never be proven. Several weeks later, he hired six natives to take him into the jungle to hunt for crocodiles, which brought a hefty price from European speculators in the Congo. The natives later demanded a cut of the profits. They paddled into the jungle, never suspecting what Carl had on his mind. As they went downriver, Carl shot and killed all six men. Can we cut that part out? <laughs> no, no, you, that's staying in. That's staying in. I will tell you, how I always thought that if I ever had to, I'd just throw it over the fence of an alligator adventure. Mm-mm. But now I've changed my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't process bone. Mm-mm. They're, they're um, with like large things. Mm-hmm. They are more like scavenger type, like sharks. Gotcha. They're not going to eat the whole thing. Like how sharks can't. They don't eat all like a whale or a dolphin. Yeah, or, yeah they take chunks out of it. Yeah, they take chunks out of it, and that's it. Mm. I mean, sharks. I don't. I know sharks don't like the taste of humans. But I don't know if crocodiles do. Well, I mean, they are called man-eating crocodiles. Well, anything's man-eating with teeth. Piranhas are hung- considered man-eating, but they don't like the taste enough, of human flesh. If it's hungry enough. I'm a lot more demented than I thought I was. No, you're not. I love it. Maybe you're, you know, starting to sympathize. Maybe I was a serial killer in a past life. Maybe. Could we be. won't know. Mm-hmm. You're you're like Betty White and Lake Placid, goddammit. What? Yeah, what? She used to feed the crocodile in Lake Placid. Uh, Did she alligator. really? Yeah, that was Betty White and Lake Placid. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen the movie in so long. Yeah. Check it out. You'll be like, God damn it. 
That's Betty White. That's Betty White. Rest easy. Um, so when he docked the boat, he realized that he had to get out of the Congo since, quote, dozens of people saw me at Libido Bay when I hired these men and the canoe. And you can never clean up all the blood. Well, he was definitely found out on that one. Like, if dozens of people saw him, it was, he had to go. Yeah, he's out. Audi Audi 5000. He headed north up the Congo River toward a place called Point Banana. Wow, he's just hitting all of these. <laughs> is it, what What is this, like the innuendo tour of Africa? Apparently. Baby, and, you want to go to Point Banana later? Mm. I'll take that as a no. Only if I get to harass you with concerts that you didn't ask for and sing Banana from Gwen Stefani. <laughs> Mm, I'm going to pass. I will do holla back. Oh, wow. Well, I just got tired all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. very you can't sleepy. use that excuse. Fucking coward. So sleepy. You're such a coward. He eventually made his way up to the Gold Coast. He robbed farmers in the local village. I'm I'm honestly heartbroken. It's not called the Golden Shower Coast. I was going to think that. Yeah. Get the fuck out of my head because this is literally where I was going with it. In my he, so he robbed the farmers in the local village and got enough money to buy a fare to the Canary Islands. Broke and unable to find anyone worth robbing, he immediately stowed away on a ship to Lisbon, Portugal. But when he arrived in the city, he discovered that the local government knew about his crime spree in Africa and cops were warned to be on the lookout for him. He managed to hide aboard another ship headed for America, and by the summer of 1922, he was back on U.S. soil. Yeah, before that, they like they pretty much told him he needs to take his ass back to Africa. Like Portugal didn't want him. I don't blame him. America didn't want him. They I were don't just going to let him just tear shit up over in Africa because they're like, "Fuck it, who cares?" Uh, terrible. Carl marveled at how easy it was to kill. He imagined himself making a living as a professional hitman who would murder for money. He brought the gun he used to the used in the Congo killings back to the United States with him, even though cops were hot on his trail as he fled Africa. In 1922, he had the gun fitted with a silencer by the Maxim Silent Firearms Company in Hartford, Connecticut. The fact that it was that easy back then to get a suppressor. Mm-hmm. But when he test-fired it later, he found that the weapon still made a great deal of noise. Much to his disappointment, quote, If that heavy-calibered pistol and the silencer had only worked as I thought it would, I would have gone into the murder business on a wholesale scale, he wrote years later. But his life of crime and mayhem caused Carl to be continuously on the move. He never lingered in one place very long. He knew the police were forever on his trail, never far behind, always ready to lock him up for some forgotten offense he committed months, even years before. He, er he learned early on to change his name frequently and never confided in anyone the details of his past life. As soon as he committed a crime, Carl would leave the area quickly, hop on a train out of town, stow away on a freighter, hitch a ride on a passing truck, always running, looking over his shoulder, waiting for the, quote, screws to catch up with him, always living with the fear of capture. This was his life. Yeah, I mean, this is like maximum paranoid Carl. Yeah. And yet still, knowing he could be minutes away from capture and driven by a hatred most of us can never understand, he killed. After uh, And killed. And killed. We'll get there. After a few days back in the States, Carl went to the U.S. Customs Office in New York City where he renewed his captain's license and retrieved his the papers for his yacht, the Aquista, wrecked on the Jersey Shoals two years before. He planned to steal another boat and refit her under the Aquista name. He began to search the local boat yards in the New York area and wandered up the Connecticut coast. He soon drifted into the seaport of Providence, Rhode Island, where he still could not find a boat that resembled the Aquista. He continued north along Boston Road in Bo into Boston and eventually arrived in the town of Salem, Massachusetts, famous for the 17th century witch trials. 
There, on the hot afternoon of July 18, 1922, he came across a 12-year-old boy walking alone on the west side of town. He said, quote, You will find that I have consistently followed one idea through all my life. I preyed upon the weak, the harmless, and the unsuspecting. That's horrible. The boy's name was George Henry McMahon. Oh, that's so cute. George Henry. That's so cute. He lit- Yeah. This is not going to be cute, though. Well, no, but his name is cute. He lived at 65 Boston Street in Salem. He had spent most of the day in a neighbor's restaurant until the owner, Mrs. Margaret Lyons, asked George to run an errand. (gasps) She said, at about 2.15, I sent him to the A&P store for the milk, giving him 15 cents. Little George left the restaurant and walked up Boston Street. I think the most infuriating thing about this is the cost of milk now compared to back then. I know. Uh-huh. That's a little depressing. He So about an hour, he goes up, he left the restaurant, walks up Boston Street. About an hour later, another neighbor, Mrs. Margaret Crean, saw George walking up the avenue with a stranger. She said, in the afternoon of July 18th, while sitting on... In front of a window in my house, I saw a boy and a man walking up the avenue. The man was dressed in a blue suit and wore a cap. That man was Carl Panzeram. And they corroborated that later on because for a long time, this went unsolved. Wow. Carl said years later, the boy's name I didn't know. He told me he was 11 years old. He was carrying a basket or pail in his hand. He told me he was going to the store to do an errand. He told me his his aunt ran this store. I asked him if he would like to earn 50 cents, and he said yes. Carl walked with George Henry to the nearby store where inside he was even brazen enough to speak with the clerk. A few minutes later, Carl convinced the child to go for a trolley ride about a mile from where they boarded the car. They exited the trolley in a deserted section of the town. Carl said, quote, I grabbed him by the arm and told him I was going to kill him. I stayed with the boy about three hours. During that time, I committed sodomy on the boy six times, and then I killed him by beating his brains out with a rock. I had stuffed down his throat several sheets of paper out of a magazine. Yeah, that's... Mm. The fact that he spent that much time... I feel like we should just put a trigger warning on this one. The, uh, we said the whole series is a trigger warning. The whole, all three episodes? Yeah. Okay. So we're good. I hope so. We covered our, our bases. He then covered the body up with three branches, with tree branches, not three, tree, and hurried out of town. He said, quote, I left him lying there with his brains coming out of his ears, he said. But as he fled the wooded area where he left George Henry's body, two Salem residents passed by. They took notice of the strange man who was carrying what appeared to be a newspaper walking quickly away. He seemed to be nervous and a little frantic, but the two witnesses continued on their way. Immediately after the murder, Carl headed back toward New York. George Henry's body was found three days later on July 21st. The Salem police and the surrounding communities formed posses and detained any strangers they came upon. Several men, including a local pedophile who had attacked several Salem children, were arrested as suspects. Was it the Sanderson sisters? (laughs) (laughs) It says several men. Oh, well, you know. Not witches. You never know. The murder was headline news for weeks but it would remain unsolved for many years until the day in 1928 when those same two witnesses would see Carl again while he was in custody for another murder in Washington, D.C. They would have no trouble identifying him as the man they saw on the sweltering afternoon of July 18, 1922, just yards away from the battered body of George Henry McMahon was found. After he left Salem, Massachusetts, Carl returned to the Westchester County area and continued to look for a suitable boat. 
In early 1923, he managed to rent an apartment in Yonkers, New York, using his alias John O'Leary. He got a job as a watchman at the Abico Mill Company at 220 Yonkers Avenue and claimed to have met a boy named George Willowson, who was 15, while he worked at the mill. He said, quote, I started to teach him the fine art of sodomy, but I found he had taught he had been taught all about it and liked it fine. Hmm. Yeah, so that's awful. He's basically creating little monsters. Yeah. The fact that he didn't kill him. It's like his lone little prodigy. During the early summer of 1923, Carl made his way back to Providence, Rhode Island, where he stole a yawl out of one of the many marinas in the bay. Is that a boat? I'm guessing. A yawl? I would would assume so, yes. Y-A-W-L, not yawl. That's that's what it says in the book. I know, but (laughs) it sounds the same. I guess it's a boat. By then, he was an accomplished sailor who had navigated the seas in dozens of countries in all sorts of weather conditions. It was a boat. It was a fine craft. It was 38 feet long and outfitted with all the best equipment. He set sail for the Long Island Sound, an area that he knew well and where he felt comfortable. Carl docked at New Haven for weeks at a time and would go out at night cruising the streets for victims to rob and sexually assault. Over the next few weeks, he burglarized homes and boats in Connecticut. He stole jewelry, cash, guns, and clothes. Off Premium Point in the city of New Rochelle, New York, he broke into a large yacht that was moored a distance offshore. He stole a 38 caliber handgun from the galley, and when he checked the papers on board, he found that the police commissioner of New Rochelle owned the vessel. In June of 1923, he sailed the yawl up the Hudson River to Yonkers, where he docked overnight. There, he picked up George Willowson and promised the boy that he could work on the yacht during his trip upriver. On Monday, June 25, 1923, the boat cruised out of the Yonkers dock due north towards Peekskill, and later that night, Carl sodomized the boy. They sailed 50 miles upriver to Kingston, where Carl moored the yacht in a small bay off of the Hudson River. He quickly repainted the hull and changed the name on the stern. Then he ventured on shore and visited the local hangouts to find a buyer. Soon, a young man agreed to come on board to check out the boat. Carl took the buyer out to the yacht on the night of June 27th, where they had a few drinks together, but the man had other things on his mind. Carl said, quote, there he tried to stick me up, but I was suspicious of his actions and was ready for him. Yes. Yeah, so somebody mm-hmm. tried to like do to Carl what he was going to do to him. About damn time. But it didn't work out well no. for, the, for old uh, the guy nope. over here. He shot the man twice in the head using the same gun that he had stolen from the police commissioner's boat. He then tied a metal weight onto the body and threw the man overboard. Carl confessed later, quote, he's still there yet as far as I know. <laughs> well, that's one body that stayed underwater, I guess. That must have been a heavy ass weight. Probably an anchor. Maybe. I could see it being an anchor. The very next morning, Carl and his passenger, George Willowson, who had witnessed the killing, sailed out of the bay heading downriver. They docked at the, they docked that same day in Poughkeepsie. Carl went on shore and stole a quantity of fishing nets worth more than $1,000. They set sail again and cruised across the river to Newburgh. After the boat dropped anchor, George jumped ship and swam to shore. He eventually made his way back to Yonkers the next day and told the police about being sexually assaulted by Carl. Yonkers police alerted all the Hudson River towns to be on the lookout for Captain John O'Leary, who was sailing a 38-foot yacht downriver. Cops still did not know that the boat was stolen out of Providence. Carl made it as far as the village of... Nyack. Nyack. I was, was, was going to say that. He secured the yawl at the Peterson's boat yard and bedded down for the night. 
But Nyack cops were vigilant, and on the morning of June 29, 1923, they boarded the yacht and arrested Carl. He was charged with sodomy, burglary, and robbery. The next day, Yonkers detectives John Fitzpatrick and Charles Ward motored upriver on a municipal ferry to pick him up. He was placed in the Yonkers City Jail awaiting court appearance. On his arrest card, O'Leary listed his occupation as, quote, seafarer, and he said he was born in Nevada and gave his age as 40. Mm. How He's not 40 yet, is he? No. No, I didn't think so. On the night of July 2nd, 1923, he tried to break out of the city jail with another prisoner, Fred Federoff. They attempted to pry the window bars out of their frames by digging into the masonry using part of a bed. They were caught when the guards made a routine inspection of their cells. And uh, John O'Leary, the Yonkers statesman, reported... As a result of an attempt by one of five men in the city prison to break out of jail, John O'Leary, alleged river, pi- <laughs> alleged river pirate. He's a butt pirate. <laughs> Damn it. Alleged butt pirate. <laughs> alleged butt pirate. John O'Leary. That's not alleged. He is a butt pirate. He's an alleged river pirate. Is in solitary confinement, locked up in a cell. This was reported on July 3rd. Carl then turned to his lawyer for help. He said, quote, I got a lawyer there, Mr. Cash, a Mr. Cashin. I told him the boat was worth five or ten thousand dollars and that I would give him the boat and the papers if he got me out of jail. So he's doing the same bit again. Well, it yep. worked the first time. So why? Why? If it ain't if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. Here's the boat. And then the guy goes to register the boat and then it's stolen. And then the lawyer has no boat. Nope, and no money either. His attorney arranged for bail, and a few days later, Carl was released. He never came back. When Mr. Cashin went to register the boat, it was discovered that it was indeed stolen. The police immediately confiscated the yacht, and Cashin lost the posted bail. Carl had conned his own lawyer. A couple of weeks later, on August 26, 1923, Carl broke into the Larchmont train depot and was in the process of going through suitcases and stealing whatever he could find when an officer approached him. They grappled with each other before Carl was disarmed and placed under arrest. He identified himself as John O'Leary and confessed to additional break-ins. In court the following day, he was charged with four counts of burglary. The judge set bail at $5,000 and remanded him to the county jail pending any grand jury action. He was indicted a few weeks later for the Larchmont burglary. He cut a deal with the DA's office in exchange for a lighter sentence and a guilty plea. While he held up his end of the bargain, the DA did not, requesting Carl serve the full five years. At first, they sent him to Sing Sing, but as is often the case with uncontrollable prisoners like Carl, he didn't stay long. Prison officials promptly transferred him to Clinton Correctional Facility, where hardened criminals were at the mercy of unusual guards accustomed to hostile inmates. In this era, Prisons were self-governing kingdoms ruled by wardens who frequently resorted to brutal methods to control their prisoners. As we've seen in the previous two episodes. Yeah, this is literally just another day for Carl. This is probably where he feels almost at home. Probably. Behind a cage or locked in a cage. Clinton Correctional Facility in upstate New York was an example of this system. Known to inmates as Donamora, the hellhole, the Clinton Correctional Facility was considered one of the most brutal facilities in the nation. Carl found himself there in October 1923, at which point guards stripped him naked and confiscated all of his possessions. The personnel at Clinton had a vaguely, or had a uniquely violent culture. Many of the staff members were related 
due to several generations of prison employees being raised and living in the area. It was like a badge of honor. You know, it's like how you'll see some like New York firefighters be like, my dad was a firefighter. His dad was a firefighter type of shit. Uh Same thing with these prison guards. Okay. It's like a source of pride to like bust these piece of shit criminals. Well, I mean, yeah. Thus, multiple generations passed down their methods and attitudes perpetuated by years of repression and abuse. They viewed the prisoners in their charge as animals who deserved brutality. Many prisoners were psychologically broken and ended up across the courtyard at the state hospital for the criminally insane, the last stop before hell. Carl made his first attempt to escape within a few short months. This is... This is fucking crazy. He climbed one of the high outer walls and fell 30 feet onto the concrete below. In the fall, he broke both of his legs and ankles and badly injured his spine. Instead of getting him medical attention, the guards carried him to his cell and unceremoniously dropped him on the floor. Yeah, dude. Um, Ow. He fell 30 feet and ruptured himself. Well, is what he says. Um, you played stupid games. You win some stupid prizes. So this is what Carl had to say about this incident. <clears throat> oh, yeah. I was dumped into a cell without any medical attention or surgical attention whatsoever. My broken bones were not set. My ankles and legs were not put in cast. The doctor never came near me. No one else was allowed to do anything for me. At the end of the 14 months of constant agony, I was taken to the hospital where I was operated on for my rupture, and one of my testicles was cut off. That doesn't seem to... He basically tore his grundle in the fall. His gooch. Ouch. He mm. he basically split the the area between his testicles and his anus. He made his butthole bigger. He gave himself a bussy. Mm. Shortly after his operation, <laughs> Carl sodomized a fellow inmate and was witnessed. How by- is he surely able to even do that? Sheer fucking determination. Bro. Because he is a guy who has been looked at as the boogeyman to prisoners for the longest time. But he is in a severely weakened state. So it's like sharks in the water with blood. You Mm. know? They're just closing in on him. He has to establish dominance still. Mm. It reminds me of... Have you ever heard of the show called Banshee? No. It's on HBO. It is so good. You have to watch it. Um, We'll add to the list. But it reminds me of... It's on HBO Max. We'll have to check it out. Um, Well, you wouldn't know. It reminds me of that. Him as like establishing dominance as soon as possible. Reminds me of a scene in Banshee. But you wouldn't understand it. Was there there Oh, dominance was established for sure. Well, I mean, that's what happened here. You know, you had Carl, who's in a weakened state. He's crippled for life because of this. I mean, think about it. His legs weren't put in cast. None of the bones were set. He's crippled for life. He broke his spine. This literally took all the steam out of Carl, pretty much. So there's, I mean, there wasn't, at this point, he's kind of like in the final act. And that's that's where we're at with this. He Carl is in his final act. So the guards, so he sodomized a fellow inmate, and a prison official saw it. And the guards threw him into solitary confinement and essentially ignored him for the remainder of his incarceration, which was two years and four months. Enough to drive you fucking crazy. Crazier, at least. He was released from Clinton in July of 1928. He was permanently crippled and lost in the depths of his own madness. His Like when they said earlier, like most people that went to this prison went mad. That's what they mean. It's like, oh, you tried to escape. You're not getting any medical attention. You just lay in agony for the rest of your sentence. 
That is not something I would wish on anybody. Mm, no. This guy. But would. it, I mean, yeah, he was crippled now, but it didn't really slow him down as much no. as, as much as you would think. He looks like a fucking gingerbread man that's had his legs snapped off, but. Not the gumdrop buttons! <laughs> you monster! He already lost one of his gumdrop buttons. <laughs> Jesus, his gumdrop buttons. You had to turn it down. I fucking can't. Anyway, his rage and hatred of humanity intensified, and he envisioned several grand schemes for mass murder. One was one such was to wipe out the population of an entire city by poisoning the water supply with arsenic. Yeah, he, I think it was Manhattan he wanted to poison the water supply, but the way he went about it was like batshit insane. He was going to, like, feed pigs arsenic and then use their blood to poison the water supply over time. So, uh, like a delayed reaction type thing. Basically, he's just going to turn the water just so fucking toxic. Interesting. Like, just fucked up shit, man. He he really went mad those two years because this is like acts of terrorism shit. Yeah. A particularly ambitious plan of his involved scuttling a British warship docked in the New York City Harbor in order to start a war between the two nations. Because at the time, our relationship with Britain was not great. Right. That this happened. So he, if he had been successful in this, he could have started an entire war between us and Oh my uh, God, he's a terrorist, he's a serial killer, what is he not? This dude is a... He's a... Savant. Treasoner. Chaos. He committed a dozen burglaries and fatally strangled a man during a robbery in Philadelphia. When he was arrested in Washington, D.C., he talked about killing children to the jail guards. When they contacted the authorities of areas where Carl had murdered children, they connected the dots and Carl was identified as a serial killer. By this time, he was a fearsome sight to behold. He stood approximately six feet tall, weighed in at 200 pounds of pure muscle, his chest and arms all tatted up, steely gray eyes, and a burning hatred for all humanity oozing from his pores. At his booking, he gave his real name for the first time in decades. And this tells you he's, he's ready. Within the first few days, he made several remarks to the guards about killing children. They made some inquiries and discovered he was telling the truth and was wanted in several jurisdictions. It was at this time he met a 26-year-old rookie guard named Henry Lesser. Henry was the son of a Jewish immigrant and had just started working at the jail that year. As Carl was being processed, Henry felt the urge to approach him and ask about the nature of his crime, to which Carl replied that he, quote, reformed people. Over the next several weeks, Henry noticed the odd man who spoke very little to anybody. For some reason, Henry took pity on the angry man and set out to befriend him by giving him one dollar to buy cigarettes and extra food. This one small act of kindness to a man who had grown unaccustomed to any small gesture of compassion meant a great deal. The two men developed a friendship of sorts and began confiding in one another. Henry Lesser convinced Carl to write down his life story. As Henry supplied the writing materials, which were considered contraband, Carl detailed in writing his distorted life of hate, depravity, and murder. He started from the beginning and on that rural Minnesota farm and told the graphic details of his savage life story. Through the writing, he revisited the atrocities he sustained at the Minnesota State Training School and all of the vices of life spent fulfilling one purpose, utter destruction. In the astounding 20,000-word confession, Carl gave precise details of his murders, which were later confirmed by authorities. He supplied dates, times, and locations, as well as his extensive arrest history. In early 1929, Carl realized he would be in jail for the rest of his life as everything was catching up to him. However, upon his arrest, he had given up. 
Carl was tired of running, evidenced by that fact that he broke two of his two of the first career criminal rules. He gave his real name and told everything. Carl Panzeram's trial for the burglary charges began on November 12, 1928, and he acted as his own attorney, taking opportunities to frighten the nine male and three female jury with his unpredictable behavior. Yeah, it never goes any well for anybody who wants to be their own attorney. No, it's giving like, uh, Manson. Rodney Alcala was his own attorney. Yeah. And Ted Bundy. Well, he was. Well, he. I don't think he went to law. Ted Bundy didn't go to law school. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Yeah, he did. He took law classes. Oh, he took law classes. But I mean, Rodney Alcala and Charles Manson just wanted chaos. Mm Mm-hmm. At the end of the proceedings, he took the stand where Carl not only confessed to the burglary, but admitted to staying in the house for several hours, hoping the owners would return because he had every intention to murder them. The entire proceedings lasted less than one day, and he was found guilty on all counts. The judge sentenced him to 25 years at none other than the federal prison in Leavenworth, Kansas. Upon hearing the sentence, all Carl could do was give a broad, evil grin as he told the judge to visit him. It's basically all come full circle now. Right? Carl arrived back in Leavenworth on February 1st, 1929, and was taken directly to Warden White's office. He was still an impressively, an impressively sized man with his bulging muscles, very apparent under his shirt, and an evil aura that gave off a warning of its own. He stood quiet and indifferent in front of the desk as he read the institution's rules. As soon as the warden finished talking, Carl looked him in dead in the eye and gave him his only warning. Then the guards were called in and they led inmate number 31614 to his cell. Now, Carl made sure to tell all the guards and everybody in this jail one thing. And that was, yeah, I'll kill the first man that bothers me. Considered too psychotic and unpredictable to be housed with Gen Pop, Carl was assigned work detail in the laundry room where he could work alone all day. His supervisor was a civilian employee by the name of Robert Warnke? Warnke. Hmm. <laughs> Warnke. Uh, it's funny to me for another reason. There's a Robert was a small balding man. Well known for writing inmates up for even the most minor infractions. I see exactly where this is going. Dude. So the, I was made me think of Mike Warnke. He was this like Christian guy that did, was basically responsible for the satanic panic of the eighties. Oh, yeah. He had a joke. that's like, if nothing sticks to Teflon, how does Teflon stick to pans? Mm-hmm. That was like his big fucking joke. It just made it made me chuckle. Sorry. He used his position as a supervisor to wield his power. He's got little man syndrome. He wrote Carl up on several occasions, which cost him some time in solitary confinement. When he got out of solitary, he told other inmates to stay clear of Robert because he would be dying soon. Then he wrote his friend Henry, telling him a new job was in the works. On June 20th, 1929, while working his usual detail in the laundry, Carl wordlessly picked up a four-foot-long iron bar and approached Robert, who was busy with paperwork. Raising the bar high over his head, Carl brought it down with a powerful force, crushing Robert's skull instantly. As he fell to the ground, Carl continued to beat him in the head relentlessly. He did warn him. I mean, that's fair. You warned him, I'll kill you if you fuck with me. That's fair. Gave him ample warning. He decided to fuck around and find out. Yep. Other inmates present just stood back and watched in horror. They tried to escape, but the doors to the room were locked. So all they could do was scream as Carl chased them around the room, shouting, cursing, and swinging the huge bar around. They were basically locked in a cage with just a berserker. A it's wild like animal. Shooting fish in a barrel. He's just like chasing around with a fucking iron bar. 
The terrified prisoners reportedly crawled up the walls to get away from the enraged madman. When the armed guards arrived, Carl calmly told them that he had killed Robert. As he dropped the heavy iron bar to the ground, the guards carefully opened the door. Carl padded to his cell, not saying a word, and sat on his bunk. Carl's murder trial for Robert's death began on April 14, 1930. He limped into the courtroom defiantly and refused counsel. When the judge asked for his plea, he stood and sneered and said, not guilty. The prosecutor called a multitude of witnesses, one of which was Warden White, who brought the murder weapon to court, five Leavenworth guards, and ten fellow prisoners. During the witness testimonies, Carl sat in his chair and smiled at them. The jury deliberated for a mere 45 minutes before delivering a guilty verdict. The judge remanded the convicted murderer back to Leavenworth until September 5th, 1930, when between 6 a.m. and 9 a.m., he would be taken to the gallows and hanged by the neck until dead. Upon hearing his sentence, Carl seemed relieved, almost happy. A genuine grin spread across his face as he stood from his chair. The U.S. Marshals surrounded him as he cursed the jury and dragged him out of the courtroom. The last thing jurors heard from Carl Panzeram was his demonic laughter, which echoed off the sterile walls of the courthouse. Carl considered his death sentence a relief of sorts and actively resisted any attempts at a stay. During that time, several organizations objected to the death penalty on moral and ethical grounds. One such group, the Society of the Abolishment of Capital Punishment, went so far as to petition the governor's office for a pardon or a commutation of the sentence. The help they wanted to provide did nothing but enrage Carl, and he lashed out at them. Yeah, he's like, I want to die. Yeah, he's like, leave me alone. I blew my crotch apart. Let me die, please. On Friday, September 5th, 1930, it was a cold and dusty morning. Corrections officers took Carl from his cell at 5.55 a.m. and escorted him to the gallows. The only witnesses to Carl's execution were a few newspaper journalists and about a dozen correction officers. Rebellious as always, Carl cursed his mother for bringing him into the world. Escorted by two U.S. Marshals, he climbed the 13 steps to the platform. As the marshals attempted to place the black hood over his head, he spat in the executioner's face and said his famous last words. Hurry up, you Hoosier bastard. I could kill ten men while you were fooling around. (laughs) With the hood secure, the marshals stepped back. At precisely 6.03 a.m., the trapdoor sprung open and Carl dropped five and a half feet down. His large body jerked a couple times, then swung from side to side in the sudden silence. Dr. Justin K. Fuller pronounced him dead at 6.18 a.m. After his body was removed from the gallows, the prison hospital performed the standard autopsy. Since nobody came to claim the body, Carl Panzeram was carted to the prison cemetery in a wheelbarrow and laid to rest in a solitary plot. The only identification is a stone with the number 31614. Fucking crazy. The This guy walked the earth. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's the story of Carl Panzeram, guys. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it as we kick off our third edition of Summer of Slaughter. Ladies, would you like to say any words? I feel like that the ending that this got was well deserved. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no, this and guy was a monster piece of shit. I feel like that there was no other way that this could have gone that would please anybody. Hmm. Maybe a gunfight or something. That would be kind of uh, cool. He was already done fighting. It went. Yeah, he I went mean, out. he was, he he was basically a out. fucking cripple. He honestly, if you really want to think about it, he kind of still went out on his own terms because he, really did. he wrote his confession and he gave his real name. 
maybe he was just over it. He's ah, fucking over it. I think that's really what it boils down to is he was he was fucking done with it, and that guy just kept fucking with him, fucking with him until he's like, I'm gonna kill this guy. Mm-hmm. He warned him. He did warn him. He gave him fair warning. <clears throat> but all right, guys. Well, that's gonna do it for this episode. Um, next week or later on, we'll be covering. H.H. Holmes will be starting that series. <laughs> so the next episode, we start H.H. Holmes, and that will be, uh, I'm not sure if it's a two or three part series. I'll have to double check. But uh, yeah, like I said, though, make sure you're downloading, rating, reviewing the episodes. Make sure your auto downloads are turned on. Christian, if you would shout out them socials. We love you guys so much, and we are so excited to be in another season of Summer Slaughter. I feel like that we need to have cocktails for this. You know, margaritas, something. Bloody Marys, maybe. I don't know. Something really. Yeah. I feel tricks. like we need to celebrate a little bit. Sam looked disgusted. What would you like me to bring up here? I mean, most of the time, it's either Trulies or bourbon at this point. I'm good with either of those. I just don't like Bloody Marys. I mean, Marys. it's summer. Oh, damn. I was going to say Bloody Marys for summer like slaughter. Bloody Marys. Uh, she said no. No to the tomatoes. Well, She's going to say no to that, but I would like you guys to say yes to our socials. So make sure you guys are <laughs> liking, sharing, and sending us that deep love that we so appreciate from you guys. Um, make sure you guys are following us on Facebook, Instagram. The kitties like it. We show it to them. They blink. They do slow binkies. Yeah, they make appearances on social media. So, yeah, uh, guys, we will see you next episode. Bye. Bye. Stay, stay creepy, everybody. Stay spooky.